1: It's the BritFlix.com podcast. It's the BritFlix.com podcast. Hi, it's Stuart Wright here, uh, host of the BritFlix.com podcast. This is a little insert from me and an apology to my latest guest, Ginny Finlay. Um, in my haste to start the interview, I hadn't pressed record. So record kicks in after the usual intro and preamble has been and gone. So uh, my guest is Ginny Finlay. That's whose voice you'll hear in a moment or two. Um, she has directed a brilliant documentary called Orion, The Man Who Will Be King. You may also know her for Sound It Out, the 2011 documentary about the last record shop in Teesside, and also The Great Hip Hop Hoax from 2013. Um, that got four stars on Britflix from Siobhan Callas, so that may be one that readers are more familiar with. Um, so, as I cut into the interview, Ginny is talking about um, Sound It Out, and I think it kind of flows. If you know she's talking about Sound It Out, then we can pick it up from there. So, again, apologies to Jeannie for messing up the intro, but I think you'll appreciate the uh, the interview on the podcast. She tells us a lot and goes into a lot of detail about the making of and the absolute adventure she went on to make Orion, the man who will be king, and also, very kindly, offers BritFit listeners a 25% discount code, which she explains at the end and is in the show notes too. So, over to Jeannie
2: so it was an opportunity to make a film just about a tiny community but that hopefully kind of spoke to lots of people so i mean it's still showing theatrically now i still get people contacting me about it it's had a it's had a really long life considering it it went out in 2011 but people still respond to it and they go and visit the shop which is amazing
1: no, no, no! Must be, must be, must be such a rewarding uh, aspect of it made the film. And then, and then there's a great hip hop hoax from 2013, which I had a quick look at Britflix website to see whether anyone reviewed "Sound It Out" and this. And uh, the reviewer Siobhan Callis she gave it uh, four stars out of five on on the Britflix website. Uh, that was one I, I think I caught that one when it was on Storyville on BBC. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, you probably did. It was yeah, it was on Went out on Storyville in 2013. So yeah. And then I made another film after that for a storyville called Panto that went out last Christmas.
1: Yeah, that's why. I've not seen that one, but I like, I like the sound of that one about the... Uh... Oh, it's
2: lovely. They're lovely, lovely people. And um, hopefully they'll show it again this Christmas, but we're doing a few theatrical screenings of it as well.
1: OK. Yeah. Well, look, let's get on to your new film then. So, Orion, what's the... Um... What's, what would be the synopsis for a for you?
2: <laughs> I feel like I've done this so many times in the last month or so. It's, um, it's quite a strange story. And it all started because I bought a record at a car boot sale about 12 years ago mm-hmm. with a masked man on the cover. But basically, it's the story of um, a man in – sorry <laughs> – Um, In 1978, Sun Records put out a new mysterious artist and he's a guy wearing a mask um, and they basically launched the idea that maybe this was Elvis and maybe Elvis hadn't died Mm. and maybe Orion was Elvis back from the grave. So I kind of go in search of the story, finding out, well, what the hell was this? What were they playing at? Because basically they invented the Elvis faked his own death uh, kind of conspiracy theory. It was cooked up in the marketing offices of Sun Records. Mm. I, I went in search of the man under the mask to see what that was like. So it's really a film about identity, about making a choice and a, a gamble for, for what you want, um, and about the kind of machinations of the national country music scene in the, in the wake of um, Elvis Presley's death.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to really appreciate, certainly from a British point of view, the kind of shadow that, that Elvis' death cast on music.
2: Yeah, it's a really big, bequiffed shadow. <laughs> if you if you imagine that this is a time before... There wasn't a lot of Elvis um, tribute artists, as they like to be called, rather than... No-one likes to be called an impersonator. Okay. But um, before... You know that that sort of thing just grew after Elvis died, and it's such a really familiar idea now that there are all these like men that dress up as Elvis, and uh, and that's a perfectly normal thing to do. But um, yeah, it was a it was a very strange time. Like just before Elvis died, he wasn't taken seriously in the press. He was kind of like a shadow of the person he'd been. And then as soon as he died, he was forever young and beautiful. And the photos of him, he always looked handsome. Um, yeah, he's he's forever young. So with the Orion story, basically this Nashville producer Shelby Singleton, who was kind of like the Simon Cowell of late seventies um, Nashville. Was he ever? In, Yeah. So he just like invented a dream, um, invented a fantasy and brought it to life. And the mask was something that just facilitated a fantasy because he didn't look that much like Elvis, but he looked enough like Elvis that if you photographed him in the, the right light or if you threw him on stage or if you closed your eyes, because he didn't just sound a little bit like Elvis. He sounded so much like Elvis that people thought, oh, it's got to be him. And they kind of voice mapped him and, and were like certain, yes, yes, this is, this is Elvis Presley. So he just pulled this audacious hoax, which which I thought was just
1: fascinating. So from someone you get that record at the booth, Carvooch sale Um Yeah. Where, where does the journey start for you in trying to make this documentary?
2: So I bought the record about 12 years ago mm-hmm. for a pound.
1: Okay. And a then investment. I wasn't...
2: Yeah. And I wasn't even making films then. and I just, you know, looked into it. This is quite an interesting story. My husband and I collect a lot of, you know, old books and comics and vintage clothes and all those sorts of things. Anyway, so six years later, I'd made a couple of features... Mm. and um, I'd never really forgotten about the Orion story. It just seemed like a complete art, a story arc. It seemed like it could be a story. It felt like there was a lot of depth and things to uncover. Mm. Um, so, I basically, I raised a tiny bit of uh, research and development money from EM Media, which is like the East Midlands branch of the Film Council, which is now no longer with us, okay. and um, I just... Went out to America and started meeting with people. So it's just, it's like being a private investigator. Because this is a, you know, I'm making a film about a guy who wasn't that famous. Yeah. So it's like really like starting from scratch and then trying to find his family members and bandmates and then persuading them that talking to this strange woman from England that they've never met before is a really good idea. So... Uh, So, yeah, it just took, and it took a really, really long time. It was a film that um, I just couldn't raise any money for it, aside from that initial kind of research money. I just just couldn't get anyone to fund it at all. So um, I started making hip-hop hoax, and then we were kind of stalled on that for a bit, and that's when I started making Sound It Out. Hmm. Um, So when I was showing Sound It Out in the States, I would just get my cameraman to come and pick me up, and we would go and get another interview in the can for Orion. So I was always working on it. Um, so yeah. So once I'd finished the Great Hip Hop Hoax, people were, you know, wanted to know what I was making next. And okay. so I decided to give okay. Orion a Orion a go. But by that point, I'd already filmed eighty hours, amassed five thousand photographs, cut twenty minutes of scenes together, and a trailer. And then we were able to get all our funders came on board. But it's a really long journey no, I to don't. get to that point.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I, was, I just benefit the listener. I was saying to you before that I like to sort of cover the, the idea of the process of making a film, not just obviously the content of the film we're talking about. And from what you've just described there, it, it strikes me that making this documentary was a massive endeavour. <laughs> rather, yeah, I rather, mean, every, rather than I'm going to make a film.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I mean, every film is an endeavour to a certain extent, but some are easier to do than others. Like mm. when I was making, you know, when I was making sound out, I just had to travel home, drive home, drive up the A19, mm. and, um, you know, sleep in the bedroom I had as a child and just go filming. Um, but with this, you know, I had to get out to the States, and also, you know, I was dealing... Delving into the past, mm. trying to track people down, and finding out the details of, phono- of a phenomenon that kind of existed in a time before Google, really. So, a lot of it was connecting with fans and finding out what pictures and film they had. And there is a lot of bootlegging um, attached to the kind of the Orion community. So often, you'd, I'd kind of find a bit of film and think, "Oh, this is quite interesting," but it's not good enough to use in a film that's going to be in cinemas, so then kind of had to try and track people down you know and try and get a paper trail who's going to sign to say that they own this to give me the rights to use it and have they got the original tape so then getting the original tapes off people and getting those re-digitized so yeah it's a massive i mean i've learned so much doing it yeah but it's been a I think that films are making films is a kind of test of your own resilience and relentlessness. Sometimes I think, so <laughs> so it's been like it's been really joyful. I think to see it in cinemas and seeing people connect with the film, and then people watching it. It's on demand now, so people watching it on demand and kind of contacting me, like just before. A, um, logged into Skype to talk to you a friend of mine just sent me a message saying oh my goodness I couldn't come to the screening but I've just watched it I loved it it's it's so good it kind of makes it feel worthwhile really
1: I, th- I thought was it from, from a writing point of view and then obviously your your your, your story is dictated by what you find and then how you decide to then jigsaw that back together mm-hmm. I, th- I thought it was interesting that you you sort of you you start us not at the beginning of his life, but you start us at the point when you know we're just about to see horizon, and then through the interviews you, we almost regress, don't we? We get to a point where you go, okay, and here's Jimmy Ellis, the individual, and you tell us about this kind of ha- this this childhood that is full of incident that that may well make someone want to be famous, may want you know that idea of why does one or someone be on stage? Why is somebody craving this so much? Is something, you, say, is something you save rather than obviously give us this information up front. How did you go about sort of setting out the narrative, as it were, of the tale you tell?
2: Um, It's kind of... Sometimes you can you can kind of have ideas about how you think a film is going to work. And originally I just thought, oh, it's all going to be very non-linear and we'll kind of dip in and out of his story. Yeah. But, you know, there's certain restrictions with the Orion story in that I'm, make, I'm telling the story retrospectively yeah. and I'm working with a lot of contributors that are no longer with us. So I'm working on what archive I have to represent their story. Mm. And it felt like with this you had to kind of Sell the idea of a right. I had to come to it in the same way that I did as an individual. So, in the same way, I picked up that record. And it was like, what is this? So that's how the film opens, mm. and then we kind of go back in time and <clears throat> and learn more about how how that man could have ended up wearing that mask in that way. Mm. And in a way, you had to understand his journey to understand. You had to understand the steps along the journey in order to understand why he would do it. Mm. Because it's, you know, the idea is, yeah, you can have fame. You can have fame, you can have adulation, you can have screaming women hollering to hear your songs, mm. but no one will ever know it's you. Do you do it? That's the question. Would you wear the mask? And so rather than just say, oh, yeah, this is what we did, I, I wanted to have an atmosphere of, intimacy and kind of understanding of this man's journey, and I wanted the audience to be along with him. So it it seemed like this was the way to do it, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the notes I made was sort of watching it was that he ends up with sort of everything he ever wanted and none of it at all at the same time.
2: Exactly. Yeah, totally. It's like, yeah, his son kind of says, um, everyone wants a mask to hide behind if you fail, but what if you succeed if I do reach the pinnacle, who am I? And that was something I really thought about when I was making the film. It's just like, how much is the, sen- <clears throat> the sense of self important? You know, if you... What, what's that like to get, to get success but not on your own terms?
1: Mm. Oh, I mean, I, the only, I mean just, just off the top of my head, the, the, the only equivalent I can think of right now is, say, Daft Punk, who don't give us their true identity. But, it's... but that's their choice. Oh, no, no, sure, da- sure, sure, sure. I think yeah. with
2: Dad Punk it's slightly different because it's their choice. I would think, I kept thinking about X Factor contestants. Okay. Because they're, um, I think people go into X Factor thinking, oh, it'll give me everything I've ever wanted and I'm going to be a pop star and it's going to be amazing without actually thinking, oh, yeah, I'm not going to get to record the songs I want. And I'm not going to get to where the clothes are on, um, Do you know what I mean? It's just a construction. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's, yeah.
2: There's a fantasy that you enter into it. And, uh, yeah, you'll get it on your terms, but you won't.
1: Um, I, thought, I thought it was fascinating that, that I mean, I, I think that there's probably a, a true representation of, of, than my suggested at Daft Um And also it's, it's sort of a, a reminder of the times, because if, if you had a masked man now, who was? I mean, he was playing as much as he's, he's relatively unknown. He was, I think, in the documentary. They talk about him playing in front of two and a half, three thousand people at times.
2: Oh, he's playing to really, really big audiences. But, but I think one of the things that's interesting about it is kind of like a, the time capsule element to it, because mm. he existed pre Google. So the way that his kind of stardom. Grew was through word of mouth, so he Mm. would go, he would travel from town to town to town, all in the south, all in the states. So, um, and people would, people found like lifelong friends by following Orion. Mm. I did lots of reading into fandom and I did some work with, um, uh, Dr. Lucy, oh god, I always forget her name. Dr. Lucy Bennett, who's Mm. an academic, yeah, he specializes in fan studies, right? And you know, the fascinating thing about that is that, um, Often when people are interested in, when they become a fan of something, it's not just the the object of their fandom that is the thing that's interesting. It's about finding themselves. It's about finding their brethren. So he kind of elicited this like huge devotion from fans, but they also found each other. Mm. So it's intoxicating kind of uh, chemistry going on of people, you know, Decorating t shirts and following behind the bus, hoping that he's going to jump out. You know, and also he was a total womanizer. So he probably had a, well, I know he had like a, a girlfriend in every t- town.
1: So. Yeah, no, he had, it's interesting that he has <laughs> a similar ethics to marriage as Tom Jones. <laughs> you know, the idea, I, mean, I love that, the expression. said, what's she what she's saying now? She said, You're at the front, he said, You're at the front of the queue. Like as if that's enough.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so that's the best position to be. And she's like, I don't want a queue. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he he married and remarried two different women, two different women three times. Yeah.
1: Um he had, he had yeah, all, he had all the ingredients for being a celebrity, didn't he? Really I suppose, Well, He had promotion. the
2: looks, the voice, mm. um the songs and you know, people love people still talk about him every day. So obviously because i spent the last few years immersed in the orion fan community mm. um i'm friends with them all so i they, they all talk about him all the time every day every day and now the the film has kind of become a focus or a prism to see that time through as well so they're all kind of very on board with the film which has been amazing
1: now, I think I think one of the things if, if I was thinking about the mask and the media, it's interesting that none of your stories sort of, or maybe because it never happened, because was was about trying to unmask him. I mean, it was always about he has to wear the mask; it's contractual. If he takes the mask off, then he's broke his contract. Whereas, if you take your X Factor example, anybody that, that, that was ushered in on that first rehearsal wearing a mask. And went right through to the final and won. <laughs> the story that the story that every editor would want is who the hell's behind the mask. Yeah. Why do you yeah. think that? Why do you think that's? What, how did Shelby Singleton manage to keep a lid on a, the media interest in somebody that he was managing to? Because was on TV and nobody seems to take it off. I
2: know. Well, I've no idea actually. I mean, I guess everyone that all the media involved with him would have wanted it to succeed, really, because mm. it means that they can keep he can keep coming back on as a as a star onto hmm. the show. Yeah, I'm surprised that he wasn't kind of totally unmasked. And I think, like, some of the fans knew after a while, because obviously he was kind uh, of getting up close and personal.
1: Well, he, with slept he slept with hundreds of them, so I guess they... He didn't keep the mask on for that, I'm guessing.
2: <laughs> well, who knows? No one would tell me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, now, now's a, now there's an image I can't get out of my
2: head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, shall but we yeah, say- I, I think it was a kind of delicious idea that people wanted to to maintain maintain the mystery really. yeah
1: because the, the, the mystery wasn't about is it Elvis or not it just was a mystery. It wasn't like there was really anyone sort of holding back a tide of want it to, wanting it to be Elvis. It was more that we don't want to find out who it is so
2: I can't. think it's kind of like i I kept thinking about it as like a three way fantasy mm. so you've got Jimmy. <clears throat> wearing a mask and thinking, this will be all right, I'll get my stardom and it's not going to affect me really. Hmm. You've got the audience kind of going, well, he doesn't quite look like Elvis, but he looks enough like him. And if I close my eyes and he's far away, the mask means that this can kind of, um, you know, I can, keep, I can keep this in place. And, um, oh God, I forgot what my point is about the third one. Oh, I've totally lost my thread. If it comes back
1: to you, you can you can put, you, you can put your, <laughs> your your virtual hand up and we'll, we'll go back to it. Uh, one of the big revelations for me, obviously, apart apart from him, I, I didn't know anything about him, so the whole the whole notion of him was a revelation to start with. So I thank you for that in terms of making the film. But but Shelby Singleton, and yeah. we mentioned him at the start, you know, being a bit like you know Simon Cowell, and yes. it's kind of like Simon Cowell and Denzel really he was he was almost like a pop mafioso really the way that he he orchestrated what went on and what he said went is the certainly the impression i got watching the movie and and he didn't care whose toes he stood on or crushed or who he pushed out the way to get what he wanted
2: no i think um i think shelby was kind of a charming rogue
1: mm. i think
2: um it's interesting, when I showed the film in Nashville, at the Nashville Film Festival, um, there was a lot of music industry people there, and obviously there was a lot of people from Sun records there, Yeah. and every single time Shelby did something outrageous, they would just laugh harder and louder, okay. and um, I think there was just an understanding that he he's just doing exactly the same sort of stuff that other people in the music industry were doing, but he owns it. So he would, you know, he would think, yeah, it's totally fine to make a man wear a mask all the time. And if he signed up for it, then, well, that's his, that's his business to get on with it. You know, um, Shelby, one of the first records Shelby put out was um, The Green Door. Um, do you remember that old song, Shaking Steam? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. So basically he would promote that. He was a maverick, Ooh. so he'd promote it by sending out actual green doors, to radio stations with the record nailed to the front of it. He was always looking for a kind of stunt. Hmm. And then, like, so the day that John Lennon was killed, he had Boomer Castleman, who's the guitarist in the film, uh, in the studio writing a song called John. And they basically had this Record out before the body was cold. Gee whiz. You know, so he was always looking for an angle.
1: Well, I guess, I guess, in the context of your story, I guess the, the elements of it because we said because we're obviously we we, we we're sympathising with Jimmy Ellis for most of the, for, for for basically all of the story really. So when yes. when when Shelby comes into the frame, as it were, whether it be you know somebody reflecting on it or a, a chapter in Jimmy Ellis's life, apart from the initial lift off it isn't for the positive, is it? And then if you add into the mix the complete disregard for copyright of somebody's novel...
2: Yeah, I mean, I th- yeah, I think Shelby was just... just didn't care who got in his way.
1: Well, I think it was... So, yeah. Shelby said, sue me, Was I think was something that Jimmy says on one of the archive bits of footage you've got, isn't
2: it? It's what Gail Bridge oh, Gale Gale says. Oh, Gail
1: Sorry, Gail So
2: um, part of the richness of the Orion story is that... Um, it's basically, Shelby basically brings the book to life. Mm, he's double. heard Jimmy Ellis's voice. He knows that it's fantastic. He, he's not quite sure how to market him. And then after Elvis dies, he reads a book called Orion by Gail brewett Giorgio about this. It's kind of basically laying out the idea that Elvis might have faked his death and mm. worn a mask to escape. No, not worn a mask, sorry. Escaped his um His death to escape the spotlight. Hmm. So he Shelby kind of um read this book, was given this book by Jimmy Ellis and said, Okay, yeah, we'll we'll um we'll make you a Ryan, and the only thing he added was the mask. And so Gail thinks, Brilliant, that's great, and then um discovers that he's printed the whole of her book like the the introduction to her book on the back of the record. Mm. And when she asked for payment, he just says, yep, so sue me. You know, and he was, I think someone says in the film, at one point he was the most sued man in Tennessee. That's right, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You know,
2: and I was going through all the archives at Nashville Council, um, and it's just Shelby Singleton gets sued again. But when it was things like record labels suing him, um, he just saw it as marketing. It was just a way to spin it, and he'd make more money out of it. He was completely fearless in terms of um, those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, and, it's and quite it's...
2: outrageous. I it, mean, it's I'm totally fascinated by Shelby because he was just an—he just didn't—he couldn't care less. He was just absolutely maverick.
1: No, no, no. And I think I think that's the thing. Watching your documentaries, it's almost like you can you can feel like the the need for the kind of the sister documentary to come out, which is of. He's of the Shelby. Shelby
2: Singleton story, yeah. Because
1: it's 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 as it's as compelling as I mean, like I say, you 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 tell a story which makes sure that we are sympathetic to uh, Jim Ellis's rise and fall and rise and fall, etc. But obviously, yeah. in and amongst that rise and fall is this one single single character who, you know, being Sun Studios makes him kind of, you know, he's part he's part of rock and roll history, you know. Absolutely, and, yeah. I mean, I think I think you, t- you gave us that example of John Lennon thing, but the idea that his first, I think, it's his first. Bit with um, with with Jimmy was to record him singing with that uh, Jerry Lee Lewis song, and, yeah. then, and then mischievously putting it out as if to say, "Well, you know, this could be a lost record of Elvis, and it could not be."
2: Yeah, well, I mean, he put out that "Save the Last Dance for Me," which mm. was Jerry Lee Lewis and Friends Love in that. inverted commas, Love that. and just um, dubbed Jimmy's voice over the top of it. And so, I mean, I remember that that song coming out. I heard it. Oh, really? And, um, yeah, I remember it, because it was a big hit worldwide. Save Last Dance With Me, allegedly. Maybe it's a, a lost duet from the Sun archives. It's so clever, I think.
1: As pranks go, I'm sure Bill Drummond <laughs> would be over the moon if it was him doing it. Wouldn't he, really?
2: Yeah. <clears> but <throat> I think, you know, he wasn't doing this for art. He was doing this for the bottom line.
1: If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix... Just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at @Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. So, what was what was the challenge for you? I mean, you, you talked about sort of taking advantage of other films you're working on, which had you in America, which meant you could try and schedule in getting more interviews and stuff, but. I mean, I'm thinking when, when you're interviewing the man's son, I mean, was, was was that, did that, was that just a case of, can we, can you be involved or was that some, were that, were that as with, were, were they in relationships? You had to nurture first before you got someone to start telling, because they've got a lot of first hand, you know, they're as, they're, they're as close as you're going to get to contemporary first hand knowledge. Absolutely.
2: Aren't well, I mean, I, um, I believe you should always get to know people on camera. Mm. The camera is like a contract. It's kind of saying, um, this is why we're here. You know, i I like a lot of people I work with very much, but Mm. I'm there to make a film. I'm there to do a job. So I hear documentary makers saying, oh, yeah, I got to know them for three months and then I start filming and it just sounds crazy to me. Mm. Yeah, I, I get to know people on camera and I use the camera as a tool to ask questions that I might be reticent about asking in real life just through, you know, being a nerd, or you know, being socially awkward. Well,
1: no, being a journalist, it's that is. Your, I think that's the permission you get. I mean, that's why. I do, that's why I do it. You've got permission yeah, totally. to ask totally. someone the question that if you I sat down in the pub next year, I wouldn't be sat, wouldn't start saying, <laughs> right, let's look at your whole film career, Jenny. You'd be like, exactly. No,
2: exactly, and I'm always amazed at, um, you know, if I genuinely like interviewing people and asking them stuff, and mm-hmm. um, people have very often very open there's usually there's a lot of crying quite often people cry um mm. and sometimes they're very structured interviews you know there's really particular things that i want people to tell me about mm. but quite often it's just a case of i do my research and research really well and then i have some notes but then i never look at them once because i'm listening <laughs> i'm trying to listen yeah, to yeah. what they say and um uh yeah it kind of mm. it kind of it's worked out um, the, yeah but what I was going to say, yeah, d- um, Jim Junior, um, we just travelled, it's, it's very, very remote where he lives, he lives yeah. in Orville, Alabama you know, population 112 people mm. and um, we arrived and he knew that we were coming and we'd explained what we wanted to do and he took us on face value and, and agreed to be in the film So, and we did the interview there and then And uh, I have to say, there were moments when I was filming him, I felt felt like I was already watching the film. It was such a kind of intense interview, and he has this really great delivery. He had really just great timing. It sounds silly, but a lot of the people I interviewed in the South just had great timing about the way they spoke. And often a lot of the people I was speaking to had never talked about the things that I was interviewing them about ever before so
1: that's, was... re- that's remarkable that because like you say they, they the ones you show us they all sound like perfect narrators you could have, you could oh, have just given the film to all of them
2: <laughs> but I feel like there is a magic moment that I'm always looking for in whatever film I do okay. where you feel like people are finding the truth in the moment they're not telling you a story that they've told five hundred times and it's really hackneyed and practiced. Mm. When there's that moment and you really see them reliving or remembering something and and finding that moment there for you, it's amazing. It's really those are the moments I'm really, really looking for. You know, mm. and in terms of the films I make, I'm always looking for I would always look for intimacy over kind of camera work every time which is not to say we don't like work really hard to make it look good (laughs) Mm. but the the thing i'm looking for always is intimacy you know and i worked with um everyone in the film all the key roles were had mentors attached so i worked with marshall curry who's a twice oscar nominated documentary maker and and um i really love marshall's work and that was one of the things that we talked about quite a lot. You know, it's about economy of language, but also about intimacy, because that's something that he strives for in the films that he makes. Like Racing Dreams, is a film that he's made, which I really, really love.
1: Okay, so when, how much um, you mentioned you you already before you even sort of sort of went back and committed to doing it, you already accrued eighty hours of footage. How, yeah. how much footage did you have in the end? And oh then, what's God. what's your approach? to then breaking that down to, what is it, is it 85 minutes? Is it all together? 86.17
2: minutes. Of course it
1: is. Because I, 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 I'm a uh, I don't want to <laughs> cheat you out of... Uh... One and a half minutes. So yeah, eighty six. No, I
2: know because it, it was ninety minutes, and I've recently cut it down again. Okay. I showed it at a few festivals, and there was a few things I wasn't happy with, so I've recut it.
1: So I mean, like a, a, it's com- a, it's a combination of what you've said with with what you're saying there is that you you're obviously doing these interviews, and you're the one that's feeling that instinctive, intuitive. Right? Mm. Here's here's the moment where they're now telling me the truth or yeah. their truth. Yeah. I mean, presumably you can't use all them <laughs> for stats. Oh yeah. Well, I
2: I I work. Usually a ten to one ratio. Okay. Um, and with when we once we would got the funding and went back, a lot of the filming, the final filming block was about creating visuals that um, that felt right. You mm. know, um, the South. Orville is like the next town to Selma, um, the same place as the you know the Selma film set last yeah, yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it was like, how do we make the South look real? How do, how does, What does that look like? And how do we film it? So, um, you know, a lot of it was about creating visuals that felt right. So going and filming at um, American football games and mm. cotton fields and in Spanish moss. Um, and did quite a lot of slow-mo stuff, which I'd not done before, but it felt really right for this film. It just felt... I wanted it to have this kind of... Um, cloying atmosphere of, this, of, of the heat of the South. Mm. You know, obviously you can't feel heat on screen, but I was trying to just make it feel hot. <laughs> and, um, I'm buying that,
1: I'm buying that. Yeah,
2: so um, a lot of it's just about trying to... I don't know, I've become possessed by the films and started dreaming about them. So for the the opening title sequence, you see Anna Ryan um, walk into a field of lights... And I had a dream about that. So it was like, well, how do I make how do I make that happen? And there was this light installation artist I really wanted to work with on The Great Hip Hop hoax, and we'd not been on to make it work. Yeah. And um, got back in touch with them, and they're like, well, we've got this new exhibition coming up in Norway. If you can get out to Oslo, you can film in the gallery for as long as you want. So we flew out to Oslo and spent a day filming in this kind of Strange field of light mm. uh, called this installation called Squid Soup. It was like thousands of beams of light that, as you moved through them, they reacted and changed colour. And we got an Elvis tribute artist and put um, put a mask on him and kind of did this very kind of stylized opening uh, to the film. And uh, yeah, and then you know, in terms of an edit, it's quite a long edit on Orion, and it's just about plotting. You know. Um, watch everything with an editor and going through all of the, um, splitting everything up into subjects. So it might have been, how, let's get everyone talking about the mask. Mm. How does that work? And let's get everyone talking about um, the decision to put the mask on. You know, and then how does that work? And, mm. you know, and it was a bit with this, we, we cut for a few, a couple of months and then I went out and did the final shoot. So it's very so of shooting visuals in, that were incredibly tailored for the film, so you almost knew where they were going to go. I,
1: I think. I think, what I, was, I think one thing that was interesting for me was, and, and, and this may sound like a crass comparison, but do you ever see the the I think it's World in Action or Panorama um, of Northern Soul from this? In fact, from the same time period that, that Jimmy Ellis would have stopped, you know, after after um, Elvis's death, sort of that time. And the, the
2: one sh- that Tony Palmer did, the thirty-minute yeah, Palmer. yeah,
1: I'll shot I'll shot him round Wigan. Yeah. Um,
2: I... Wiccan Casino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loves yeah. that film. Yeah, well, well the,
1: your, 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 the sort of implication of what, what his parents thought reminded me a lot of those, those older the older generation who were kind of now out of touch with this young we don't care, we've got choice generation, which is, you mm-hmm. know, why do you want to go out? You've got a job, you know, that kind of mm. reaction. And obviously the story we get here is why do you want to be a singer? You've got a horse farm. Yeah. You know, it's like the, the idea that, and I mean, look, I mean, I, I could. My I remember uh, I I used to manage a band, and I, I you know, I, and, and we did all right. And I remember speaking to my gran, and her, her thing was, why do you want to do that? You've got a job. Yeah. It's like the idea that I did something that wasn't my job, was kind of insane. And that's kind of you know the logic. You know, this and there's especially it must be. I mean, you've been to these places, obviously those those low populated and and, and the, the fact that they're low low populations and they're quite sparse doesn't get away from the fact that everybody knows everybody's business I'm guessing
2: oh yeah you know totally and his parents were um kind of a rich family in in an area that was quite poor really
1: mm.
2: you know is and is still still is now and what's quite what's quite um odd now going back is that you have all these antebellum houses that were really big back in the day kind of gone with the wind style houses yeah and they've been taken over by nature you know this is an area of the country that is is really facing um you know it's not cuts but it's it's going through economic um downturn absolutely it's not the kind of cotton producing uh place that it was because you know obviously in a lot of these areas it's a a place where the economy was based on um well, it was pre-segregation where there was a mm. lot of money in the area. So after segregation, the area, you know, changed. And economically, it changed a lot. So, yeah, it's a, it's a strange place. And he absolutely, Jimmy, in order to pursue his dream of being a musician, absolutely turned his back on the life that he'd been adopted into. You know, he was his Family adopted him because they were looking for someone to take on. Well, they wanted a son, but they also wanted someone to take on the family name, take on the family tradition, and and those. Yeah, it feels like a, a snapshot of a different way of life, really.
1: Yeah, and actually, actually, name reminded me of that element. I wasn't, I wasn't sure whether whether we could talk about that, but yeah, you, you, you've. Um, there is there is a, there is a sense that if blood's thicker than water, then he wasn't their blood. So therefore, him having these aspirations that reach beyond what was on a plate to him is 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 quite fit is not new. Unu- isn't that unusual then is it it's not like the apple falling far from the tree he never was on their tree
2: yeah i feel like he really really tried to be you know to do it the right way out yeah. of duty out of love but in the end his desire to be to follow his dream was too strong and it was something that he just had to follow um, you know, and I think a lot of people feel feel
1: like that in their lives, don't they? No, no, totally, totally. You, you, everyone's forever torn by demands on their life versus desires in life.
2: I, mean, I, think, I don't. I
1: don't think they're the they're the two things. I think I know we. You know, you've only got to look at someone like um, like Lance Armstrong. You know, <laughs> you
2: know yeah.
1: There's there's an extreme version of what happens when someone is determined to do something against against all the whole logic. Yeah. Um, What was what going going into this with your perceptions of what what you were going into and the kind of things you're picking up from your desktop research side of it? Mm. What was what was your favourite or surprising revelation um, for you to discover that really sort of changed how you saw the story?
2: Um, I think. I think one of the things that I didn't know was that he kind of sold all of his horses to try and make it in Los Angeles. Okay. You know, I don't want to give away too many sure. kind of spoilers, but the idea that he gambled a whole lifestyle to get to get what he really wanted, mm. but that that only lasted him a year. That just seemed terrible. Like especially when we were actually there in the South, and you see the horse farms, and you see the country, and you think, God, this isn't just about... Um, giving it a go, you know, like packing your bag and moving to London sort of thing. This, yeah, was, yeah. this was like, wow, he he really threw it all in. Um, and then I guess originally I thought I was going to make this really, I don't know, pop culture, shiny, glitzy doc. <laughs> That's originally <laughs> what I thought. But actually what I what ended up making, um, it's such a – tone of the film is quite odd I think in that it's quite funny. But mm. well, audiences laugh a lot and there's things in it that are funny and but then it's also very um I've had quite a lot of people cry and it's quite it's quite um it's much darker than I ever thought it was gonna be going in and I just had to follow that because that's the story that unfolded as I was telling
1: it. Yeah, well, look, we've mentioned it a couple of times with with, with the X Factor comparison, but I think you really do mine into that kind of dark dark heart of what it means to be famous or to even want to be famous, which is kind of now now has become a thing in of itself. I mean, at least you could you could say Jimmy Ellis wanted to be a singer who would then be famous. You know? Yes,
2: absolutely. He <clears throat> didn't just want the fame no. in
1: itself. But, but he but, but he knew the singing was a was a means to an end. Yes. and His quick fixes would have been his groupies or whatever. Um, but I think you, you definitely do because there's that beautiful, um, beautiful and tragic way. The sort of footage of what he did in the '80s, which, which is beginning, you know, which is the sort of showing you what happens when someone's on the downward hill, not the upward hill, really perfectly. I've seen, I've seen a Johnny Thunder's documentary where you just see Johnny Thunder's playing in some blues bar, and it's kind of like. It's, it's awful when you see you see that kind of thing where someone's when you've seen the other side of it as well
2: yeah absolutely I mean we had um, his life's pre- pretty much documented at every stage so we're able to show all the different all the different incarnations and all the different uh, attempts that he made really
1: um, yeah I, I guess I guess it, it might be pre-google but it's at least it's sort of post the sort of um the birth of the video cassette and stuff
2: so oh yeah well you see you see technology changing throughout the film so yeah. Yeah. there's super 8 there's black and white photography you know studio stuff and then you start to see the vhs vhs tapes arriving um and then mini dv and that's that sort of thing uh it's quite interesting because the film took so long for me to make i started filming on tape and then by the end it was all you know, it was all digital of course. and very, very different kind of uh, format. But there was a thing that you know, origi- on those on that initial shoot, for some of the people, I kind of thought, oh well, you know, when we get the full production, you know, I'll come back and we'll put we'll do a full setup and nice glass and all that sort of thing. But in a few instances, the people that we filmed died, so it was kind of it was like treating my own film like archive, really.
1: Wow. That's, that's quite powerful in of itself, isn't it? It's like you you went yeah. and you went and got the social document in in.
2: Oh yeah, like if it was the sort of it's so weird making films, but I was so convinced that this was a story that should be told, or is a story that I wanted to tell. That I just thought, you know what? It's just worth it's worth just doing it, hmm. and um, I'm glad you did because otherwise, those those I wouldn't have got those people's testimonies down at all.
1: Hmm. I mean, I think and I think the. The highest compliment you can pay to any sort of documentary filmmaker, I think, is that when you watch something you, you for the first time, you're kind of wondering why has nobody done this before? Um, that was the thing. I mean, it's and it's even more made more even more interested by the very fact that your journey started with a you know a one pound record, not not this idea of <laughs> of knowing too much about in Full stop.
2: Oh yeah, no, it was a total um, total. Shot in the dark for me, really. Mm. I just went. I felt like Jimmy found me in lots of ways. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I was surprised that that no one had, had done it. Like for example, when I made the Great Hip Hop hoax, there was nine other filmmakers vying to get the rights to make that story at one point.
1: Wow.
2: Um, you know, because it was in the Guardian, it was mm. a story in the Guardian. We all read about it, and all of us at the same time kind of went, "Oh, that's that sounds like a film." yeah. But yeah, yeah. this, it just felt secret. It felt like oh, well, no one knows about this because I found it, you know, and, um, you know, me and my husband found this interest in it and discovered it and it just seemed like this, it just seemed like a film. I think there's a moment with all, with all of my films, there's always been a moment where I've just kind of, it feels like the world stopped spinning for a moment. Mm. And you kind of look around and think, oh my God, can anyone else see this? Mm. This has got to be a film. Like when I made Panto, mm. I went to see the the local pantomime it's uh, Amdram, Pantomime, near Me. Yeah. And um, I was watching it, and I just remember sitting there in the interval thinking, I'm going to make a film like this. It's got everything. They've got other lives. <laughs> 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 They'll they all work or they don't work, and what's going on there? It left me with so many questions. I was just, I've got to make a film. So I, made, I filmed it the next year. And, um, yeah, but wasn't sure where it was going to go, and then BBC Storyville commissioned it. But sometimes you just you
1: just gotta do it I think. no well no, I mean friends of mine have been following the 60s singer Chris Farlow for the last four or five years. I mean they started that documentary without a camera as they jokingly say <laughs> wow. um, you know that's so how their journey started and it was it, it started it started with them not even knowing he was a singer at first and then finding out he's a singer to then find out he was number one when the England won the world Cup sort of, and okay. you, you, you begin to sort of go well why why is nobody doing this?" <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess, but there's such a big undertaking, isn't there? There's a mm. of like once you've done the six years of work. <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've yeah, quite a yeah. lot of people saying, oh, yeah, yeah, why did no one else do this? And, and you think, because it, take, it takes that long. No,
1: no. I don't really. know,
2: people have, I think that sometimes the filmmaking is in, is in actually doing it, is in delivering it. Remember when I made my first film and it went out on, on BBC4? I got an email from someone saying, yeah, well done. That was the idea I had a couple of years ago. And uh, yeah, you've made it. And it's like, oh, you're congratulating me on your idea. That's crazy. You know, filmmaking is about picking up a camera. It's about driving into the middle of nowhere to a town with 112 people and getting the interview and actually doing it. It's not poncing around film festivals and talking about, filmmaking it's actually delivering the films i really believe in that really strongly so yeah
1: well look congratulations <laughs> with the uh, that's a very powerful speech and i'll buy that for a dollar um i have <laughs> really oh, congratu- sorry i
2: said
1: I no no that was still, great no i what?
2: just tell students that i've been i get asked to do a lot of master classes at film schools and I, I didn't go to film school and i kind of get into trouble because i tell them just don't bother just buy a camera just learn
1: well, no, this, this is, I mean, I get, obviously, I, I, I not obviously at all, but I ask a lot of people this who come on who make narr- uh, fictional stuff as well as documentary stuff. And I think, it, it, like, I'm 43 now, so people who are my age and older went to film school when it was important to get your hands on kit because it was all very physical. Yes. Now it's not as physical. I, and, and what I mean by that is the bloody edited suite, as far as I can tell. You know, that was the main bit of kit that you couldn't be carrying around in your bedroom. Um is is that you, yeah you're right making films is 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 arguably the best education for um for people who want to make films because because now you've even got an outlet and you can see if an audience even likes it you know if you're making stuff it's and i don't mean and that isn't about making money from film that's just about seeing whether you can do it
2: oh yeah totally i mean we um you know and the opportunities for funding films is different now than it was um you know a long a long time ago I mean I, I came to making films as an artist mm. so I've been making films for my daughter's 11 and I pitched my first film to the BBC when I was six months pregnant so I look at my daughter as this kind of um, <laughs> human barometer for how long you know how long I've been making films for yeah. and um yeah, things are different. We Sound It Out was one of the very first crowdfunded films in this country. We spent the whole of the first campaign explaining what crowdfunding was to people. Yeah. It was crazy, but you know, yeah. Anyway, I, dig, I digress. But, oh, okay. Um, well, look, I was just going to. There's lots of different opportunities out there for people to do to try stuff and make mistakes.
1: Exactly. And I think that's the important thing. I think you don't you don't you don't get offered the job. You get to try it out. Make mistakes, learn, and make stuff that's worth watching. That's kind Absolutely. of the journey you should. Be. And I guess. I guess. I mean, when you say you did that, what you went to art school and then started making films, or you went—is that what you mean?
2: No, I I went to art school. Um, I studied. Um, I did quite a strange course actually. I learned. I did um, contemporary art, so half music, half art. Okay. And so I made work for large-scale artwork for galleries and did soundtracks, wrote soundtracks. I played cello. But, but, in that, but in, by doing that,
1: you were, you, were, you were getting involved with the process of starting with that germ of an idea and then the work that's involved taking that germ to being not oh,
2: just... Oh, yeah. Well, just, I think it just made me feel like... Um, well i I crafted my visual approach and mm. um learnt about what it's like to take work into the world. Yeah. so actually, the way that things are now with social media and with um independent distribution um it, it feels like a really good fit because it's just like being an artist so um yeah, so the dVDs for Orion have to look like the work, so we're putting out a record and uh, we've done a uh, wrap around artwork to go with the film, so people have been uploading masked portraits <laughs> of themselves uh, using the hashtag i am a Ryan, and okay yeah, is not it we live in interesting times i think for for making creative work,
1: yeah, which is kind of it's 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 a it, it takes that idea of meta data to 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 like you know wherever you want to take it really. it's not it used to be kind of obvious, and now it's kind of what fit like you've just said what you say now it's like what fits with the movie not not what yeah, you totally have to do with a movie. It's what fits.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, look, congratulations with Orion, the man who would be king. Do you Thank want to you. tell people how they can see this movie? Because it is out now.
2: Yes. Well, we're still doing some screening. We're doing, still doing some special screenings. But mm-hmm. if you go on to com, mm-hmm. there's links to all our screenings. Okay. But also, um, we are available in lots of places on demand. So we're on iTunes, We're on Curzon Home Cinema. We're on We Are Colony with loads of extras and BT Home Cinema. But we're also on VHX. So we're using VHX to do our own kind of online stuff. And we've set up a special um, discount code for BritFlix listeners. So if you enter BritFlix in, you'll get 25% off watching the film online.
1: Fantastic. Well, I'll put the links in the show notes so that people can do that quite easily. Brilliant. Uh, and then one last question, uh, as we like to ask everybody to recommend us a film. Uh, can you could you tell us maybe a favourite or a, a British documentary that you'd recommend? Um,
2: I would recommend Dreamcatcher by Kim Longinotto.
1: Okay, and what's that one about? Um, and,
2: oh, it's a it's a really powerful film. Kim's one of the UK's um, most Just the most brilliant documentary maker. She's made 17 features. Cheat was. Yeah, she's absolutely brilliant. So Dreamcatcher is um, a film about Brenda, who looks after prostitutes on the street in Chicago. And the thing about Kim is she's utterly fearless. So she's made a film. uh, She puts herself in danger. She um, gets to know um, these different communities and women. And so you see, you see worlds that you would never get to go to, and you right. get to understand people's lives that you would never know. And Kim's, she's, um, I got to know her because she wrote me a letter after she saw sort of signed it Out, and we've become really close friends. But her yeah. films are absolutely astonishing; they're absolutely brilliant.
1: No, oh, sounds like a cracker, and I think I'll check it out.
2: It's really good. I think it's on Dog Wolf, so okay. it's available on iTunes
1: magic magic. well thank you very much well look thank you very much for your time coming on the podcast
2: oh you're so welcome
1: if you don't already subscribe to BritFlix just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly thank you